0: Corey McFadden has quickly risen from everyday eBay saleswoman to one of the leading experts in the luxury consignment industry. Her multi-million dollar business, eDropoff, specializes in the resale of authentic designer handbags, clothing, shoes, jewelry, and accessories. More recently, Corey was inspired by the birth of her daughter Zelda to launch a second site, Glitter and Bubbles a guide for moms looking for inspiration in fashion, decor, and food.
1: It was common because what they would do is they would manipulate this act to corner the marketplace. So they would come through and be like, eBay, all this Tiffany is fake. You have to take it down. And what they would do is find one item that was really fake, and then they file a lawsuit against eBay, and it would usually settle out between 50 to $100 million, and eBay took some really hard hits. And so with that, I was like, okay, this is what we have to figure
0: out. In this illuminating discussion, Corey talks about what it takes to turn your home business into a massive enterprise and unlock your potential by pursuing your passion. Please enjoy our conversation with Corey McFadden. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, The Social University. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com.
2: possesses you to skip your own college graduation to start a company?
1: Well, um, I was very dramatic with leaving college, I think, because I was so upset with my program director um, that it was kind of a good way to stick it to her. Um, and you're like, why did you hate your program director? Um and we'll kind of get into it, but when I came up with the idea for e-drop-off and redefining this luxury consignment world, I was in my senior year of college, and I had this moment, this aha moment, that I was going to do this. And when I went to my program director, who I had been working side-by-side with and looking for that support and that enthusiasm and that, like, go get it, she looked at me and told me it was the worst idea she had ever heard. And so that was, like, this moment, basically. And... A lot of people would be like, okay, that's a terrible idea. Like, let me go back and think of something else. And I use that as fuel. And I literally walked out of the office and I was like, you're wrong. I'm going to show you. And thank you very much for that. So
2: you have this background in fashion, and you decide you're just going to open like an eBay
1: store. store? Yeah, pretty much. So They they didn't think that was a brilliant idea. I I can't imagine. Why not? Um, But I think where I I was so upset was that, you know, I was studying in a creative field. Um, I wasn't in, you know, med school. It wasn't like I was, you know, studying to be an attorney and suddenly I'm like, I'm going to open an eBay store. I was in a creative field. And I think for you know, and paying a lot of money to be there. And for that program director to look at me and not understand what I was trying to do, one, she was in the wrong role, she had no business being there, but it was, it was upsetting to me. And so I'm, I'm a little crazy, I'm kind of crazy. Um, and what I did was I was like, okay, fine, whatever. And my mom had her attorney draw up, a letter that they agreed and they signed, because she's a moron, um, that they couldn't use my name as alumni. And so to this day, they can't use my name as alumni. They can't speak of me and I've never mentioned the name and you'll have no idea where I went to school because I won't even say the name of the school. Um, But it was one of their biggest mistakes they made because it's a school that's local, they could have used me for so many things. And one individual, which I think is an important lesson, especially when you have employees, one individual can be detrimental. If you have poison in there, they can do something that impacts you long term. And that's what she did. Um, But it was a good motivator.
2: How did you use that motivation? You you never run a business before. And the intricacies of of doing this, how did you actually get started and and build it into fruition?
1: So my brain, I've always been an entrepreneur. Um, I think the word entrepreneur is one of the most misused words in our vocabulary right now. You know, growing up, it was like, I want to be a vet. I want to be this. No one ever said, I want to be an entrepreneur. Like You did not hear it. And now it's become this movement that everyone's like, I'm an entrepreneur, which I think is a great movement. But it's like understanding, what does that really mean? And for me, um, I didn't know what I was doing, but it's ingrained in me. It's how my brain works. It sees something long-term, and it can literally catalog everything that needs to happen and the steps that need to happen to get there. And I think a lot of people have that ability, but it was putting the sweat equity into it, and it was willing to like continue to eat broccoli and cheese soup from Panera for like another six years, because it's $3.63, and that's all I could afford, and, and being willing to make those sacrifices. Um, but I knew in my gut that this is what I was supposed to be doing. Explain the, the
2: concept of pioneering luxury consignment and how that started to, to work. Because in consignment, I mean, that, the hard part is you don't know what you're getting, if it's a secondhand you know, used designer dress or handbag or jewelry.
1: Yeah, so back when I started off this is 2004, so you think back, just when the internet was, e-commerce was starting to really evolve. I mean, this is back when people did not feel comfortable putting their credit card in online. They're like, is it really going to show up? And the big thing back then was counterfeit goods. They were not real. Everything that people were selling online, it was so many fakes. And so what I did was I kind of identified those points that needed education around them. Um, and what set us apart early on was authenticity. Because the biggest thing and the biggest concern for people was, is it real? How do I know it's real? And there's something that's called the Digital Millennium Act. It was written while Clinton was in office, so a long time ago. And it's basically what protects the trademark holders on the internet. And it has not been rewritten since. So it's extremely outdated. But what it does is it gives trademark holders the rights to their merchandise online. So. I sell on eBay, they can come along and say, this is fake, you need to take it down. And so what eBay used to do was, if you had something removed for trademark rights, they would limit your account in selling luxury goods. Well, that was detrimental to me, who needed to sell Chanel, Fendi, Hermes, Gucci, Prada. And it was common, because what they would do is they would manipulate this act to corner the marketplace. So they would come through and be like, eBay, all this Tiffany is fake, you have to take it down. And what they would do is find one item that was really fake, and then they file a lawsuit against eBay, and it would usually settle out between 50 to $100 million, and eBay took some really hard hits. And so with that, I was like, okay, this is what we have to figure out. We have to figure out how to sell items so the trademark holders know they're real, and what I did was I built relationships with the trademark holders. If something would get removed, I'd figure out what attorney represents them. I would call that firm. I would hound that attorney down until I got him on the phone. I would explain to them what we're doing, what I'm out to do. I'm here to protect the integrity of your product. I want to make sure it's represented well, too. This is my background. This is my passion. And I built those early relationships where no one was thinking to go outside of the marketplace. And then I was able to really sell designer. And, and get that going. So was there times where they came after you as well? Oh, I got caught. Con- I mean, they came after me. Like, I've battled with Chanel for, like, seven months. That was my first, like, real battle. And I was on this regulation from eBay. And it, was, it almost put me out of business. And what happened was I was selling a bunch of sunglasses from someone who worked for Luxottica, which is a distributor. And she was selling all of her old samples, which by their rule was illegal. She couldn't resell her samples. Well, she was selling them through me, so I was the seller. Well, I couldn't say this is, you know, my client confidentiality, I don't break that. And I couldn't say, well, she works for Luxotica because then she could lose her job. So it was like left me on the front lines to defend it. Um, And once I worked it out with them, then I realized that you can work with these brands. And these brands can seem extremely intimidating. You're like, I'm going to call Chanel's trademark attorney. And mind you, I was like 23 years old. Um, And and I did it. I just did it. It's like identifying what needs to be done and doing it. A lot of times people are scared. They don't want to put in the sweat equity. And it seems intimidating. So you put it off. Oh, I'll get to it on Wednesday. Well, I'm going to do it next Monday. And then, like, it's on, like, your calendar list for, like, 90 days, and it pops up on your phone every day, and it just becomes habit to shut it out. Like, we all do it. I was supposed to call my girlfriend back for, like, three weeks, and it, like, pops up every day. I was, like, hit it out. But it's, like, it's just doing it. It's, like, tackling that hard shit that you don't want to deal with. It's just doing it.
2: You know, luxury consignment now is... is Cool, you know there are a lot of big things out there. Tradesy, Real Real, other things like that. How do you keep yourself relevant?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, When I started this company, it was like forty-year-old virgin. That movie came out the same year I opened, and like I hated that movie so much. People come in and be like, "You got the goldfish shoes," and you're like, "I'm gonna hit you!" Like, (laughs) please leave. Like everyone thought they were so. Oh, you're like the forty-year-old virgin. You're like, yeah, no. Like, kind of, I guess. Like, and. You know, I I pioneered. I, when I pioneer I didn't set out to pioneer this. What I did was I I identified a niche that needed to be redefined. It needed to meet our digital age, and it needed just a sprucing up and being made cool, which I ended up pioneering this large industry. Um, but I was faced with: Do I take VC money? Do I open a bunch of locations? Do I do I give up ownership early on? What do I do? And for me. I've always remained self-funded because it's what was right for me and what felt right. Um, But when you pioneer something, like anything that works well, competitors come along and then you have big sharks that come along and you know, taking $200 million of VC and suddenly you're like, okay, whoa, like I can't really compete with you, but you can. It's about identifying your niche within that. There's room for everyone. That's what's important is we, there's a million grocery store options. You go to Whole Foods because you like something there and you might go to Trader Joe's because something speaks to you there. Like there's room for everybody. It's just about identifying your niche. So then it's also about taking really great care of who you have. Because when the industry gets competitive, everyone starts undercutting everyone to acquire as many as they can. It's like cell phone service, like Sprint and Verizon. You're just like, oh my god, Like I'll give you, what's your bill? I'll cut 25% off of it. And that's kind of where my industry is at. So what we have done is like really focusing on the clients we have and giving them attention that they can't get anywhere else. And so a lot of times why we stay loyal to some places because you love the person that takes care of you. You love the extra mile they go. Maybe they send you flowers on your birthday. And you're like, oh my god, like they sent me flowers on my birthday. It's about doing that and really listening and taking care of someone. Because when you start cycling through the larger competitors, they just become numbers, not necessarily a client. So we've really, we nurture those relationships and we value them.
2: You know, there's always such question about scale, scale quickly, yeah. what's your exit? What are you going to do? What, what do you wish someone would have told you along the way?
1: Yes, um, the number one thing I wish that no one told me um, and you learn because that's part of being an entrepreneur is you learn from lessons is that when things are so good and the stars actually aligned and you wake up and you're like, oh my God, this is working. I'm doing it. I own this. That's the time you exit. That's the time to go. Because when you are, let's say you're at the top of your market and there aren't a lot of people doing it. That's usually the prime time. And no one tells you that. Because those days shift. It's not like your days suddenly become terrible. But that, like everything, we all have highs. It's like being in a new relationship. And you're like, oh my god, the first four months were the best. Like the best dates. We all kind of like do things that we might not do. Like I went on a four-day motorcycle trip in the same clothes. I don't do those things, but for my husband I did. Um, but you know, it's it's kind of being in that phase and, and kind of seeing outside of that. And so when things are so good that you're like, awesome, Explore those exit strategies because a lot of times that's the easiest way to go and you're, you're stimulated in a way to continue and you can still be part of that organization. And it's not that I want to exit my company now, but I never even explored the option. I never, because it was like, I have a TV show, like I have all these employees, I've got another location, like everything is amazing. The momentum is just like, it carries me every single day. I couldn't imagine doing anything else, but I should have explored those options and I didn't. Um, And it's fine that I didn't, but I wish I would've. But
2: because you didn't, then there comes a point in your career. So you're like, okay, how do I evolve? How do I grow? Um, How do you explore from there? Talk about what this, this second career and way to maintain yourself as, as relevant really unfolded for you.
1: Yeah. So when you're an entrepreneur, um, you're creative. Your mind is always thinking, you're always identifying something, seeing something, and not even entrepreneur. I mean, it's it, it could just be your mindset. Um, but for me, it was like, I have to stay creative. I need that outlet. And. E drop off is a machine like it just it runs itself and yes there's creative opportunities through marketing and influencer relationships and celebrity auctions and all that stuff is cool but it's still kind of the same you know you're you're just coming up with your spring campaign i wanted something that like was totally different and so a lot of times people go into like consulting work so they're working with other small businesses and helping entrepreneurs like stimulate ideas and and i do a lot of mentoring and those things are great but when i had my daughter i found myself in this new role of like also being a mom and people looking to me for how do you have a kid and run a company or oh my god like it's it's never the right time to have a kid like let's be real if anyone has kids in here like it's not like you wake up and you're like oh my god my house is the perfect size and I have enough money and my career is amazing and I love my partner and let's have babies like it's not the way it works um, and for me like I had my daughter I was not planning on having her but she's been the biggest blessing in my life and I wanted to find a way that. My time with her was spent in a, in a creative fashion. Not always, but that we could do things together. And I was kind of always anti-blogger, um, which now we're not called bloggers, called influencers. Um, and I, I was anti that movement for so long because I was an entrepreneur. And I was like, they don't understand. Well, some of them do understand, and they've like done amazing, amazing things with that. And I kind of realized, like, this isn't such a bad thing. Like, someone's gonna send you on a free trip to Jamaica? That's pretty cool. Dyson's gonna send you, like, a $700 vacuum that, like, you wanted? Okay, they're onto something. Um, And I started Glitter & Bubbles to be an outlet to serve as inspiration for others that are thinking about possibly having a child, or maybe they don't want a child, they just want to see something beautifully curated, Um, but that's honest. And so with my blog, it's just things that we're doing. It's like me and my daughter, like literally out at the playground and I'm snapping her like in a set of overalls that was sent to her, and she might be being paid to play, which is awesome. But with me, like, it allows me to conceptualize. So it allows me to like, pick the location that we're going to do this and shoot this, or come up with a creative way to like, pitch this brand. And what it does is like, someone's like, OK, like, this mom's cool. Like, I like this. I want to know more about her. So suddenly, they're on the blog. They see me. They see what I do. Suddenly, they're on a drop-off. And they're like, oh, wait. I have a couple Louis bags to sell. And it all plays together. And so what it's done is it just served as another way for me to continually reinvent myself, stay relevant, stay in the press. It might be related to glitter and bubbles, but then they, they're on there and they want to know more. Because usually when you see like, a mom, you're like, well, what does she do? Does she work? Like, Does she not? Like, You have all these questions. And it's just kept me, kept me fresh in other ways and also kept me creatively stimulated. How has that journey been from being this,
2: you know, single powerhouse woman, you know, you're front and center on a TV show and things are going well, and then you get into a relationship and then you have a kid. How how was that kind of nurturing both of those and the, and the struggle or the joy of that process for you?
1: Um, so I'm really lucky when it comes to my relationship and my child. Um, my... Forever fiance, I call it. We've been engaged for five years. Um, but he, I've been with him for almost 10. He's amazing. We just haven't gotten married yet, not because we don't want to. We just kind of want to wake up and get married one day. Um, long story. We'll get off that. But um, he is, he's awesome, but he works for himself, too. And so he's a developer contractor, and he's an entrepreneur. And he moved here from Greece when he was 20, didn't know English, and never left. He's now 45. So he's worked himself up from the beginning, and we we understand that about each other. And so when he's like, I have to work till midnight, or I have to go to Hong Kong in the morning, like I don't give him the pushback. It's like you got to do what you got to do. Like I get that. And so we've worked well in that way, and being able to support each other. But I will say. Um, Relationships are difficult. I mean, we all know that. You could be in the happiest relationship in the world, and like you want to like gouge his or her eyes out like thirty <laughs> percent of the time. I'm like, come on, we all know. Um, be honest. And the biggest thing for us, honestly, early on, was going to couples therapy. And we went to couples therapy when we were in a place that everything was really good. It wasn't like we wanted to kill each other. And what that so did
2: before they were major.
1: Hundred percent. You go go so before there's problems. Like that? Um, for us, we needed a tool. I'm like a therapist now. We needed our emotional toolbox, but we needed um, <laughs> we needed a toolbox. We needed other ways to communicate, and we needed kind of um, a safe zone to bring up certain hot topics, like in-laws or ours, um, his mother, um, like. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: thought that gets the biggest laugh
1: in the room. Uh, we all know, um, but. You know, we kind of needed that zone that we could safely discuss those things without us both like emotionally just blowing up on it, and it taught us a lot, a lot. Um, and therapy is really, really healthy. Um, or finding an outlet that you can kind of get that get that out, or get that meditative state, whatever it is, to calm yourself and release it because you have to release it. And when you are a business owner, a lot of times you, you just internalize everything. When you're the face of something, like you can't go to work and be like, X, Y, and Z is wrong. This is terrible. I, I have these problems. Because you have a staff that you have to keep a culture and you have to keep a motivation going. And so you have to find that outlet to get that stuff off. Um, and we did that early on and we, we got in that toolbox I can see like, we've been together for nine years last weekend and like, I'm happier with him than I've ever been. Um, and our, my daughter is just awesome. Um, she'll be three in July. But having her has been the most pivotal moment for me in my career because what it did was, well, I manage a lot of, well, I don't want to offend anyone, but I manage a lot of millennials. And so I deal with um, a lot of things that would upset me during the day or I'm dealing kind of with their problems or they're not coming into work and it's impacting our productivity. And when I had her, it puts a lot of things in perspective to where I'm like, what's noise versus what really deserves attention? Um, and it, I think it made me a better manager and a better leader. It made me a lot more calm with certain things. Um, but it's, it's awesome. And if you're in a relationship that, like, your partner does not support what you're doing, if your partner does not support you, It's not going to work because what's going to happen is that that partner's either going to end up resenting you and it'll cause problems or you're going to resent them because you don't go through with fully with what you want to do. And then the time's going to come later down the line that you're like, I wanted to do this. And that constant resentment will be there. So when it comes to having a partner, they have to be supportive. Now they might not fully understand, like Spiro reads Glitter and Bubbles, like, I don't know, I don't even know if he reads it, he might. Um, But he he, he understands, when I come to him and I'm excited about something, he listens. But like, they don't fully have to understand what you're doing, but they do need to support you. When you're looking at the future, this is kind of a, a
2: second act for you. Are you a planner, are you a, this is my one year, my five year, my 20 year
1: plan. Are you like, well, let's see
2: what next month holds. How do you go about your
1: approach. So you have to like have certain metrics in place um, as far as you know things that need to be met. Um, but I am not I'm not big on like the 5 10 20 year plan. Like honestly, I don't even know if I'll God, I don't want to say that. I'm like jinx myself, like final destination. (laughs) Never mind. I'm going to be here tomorrow. Um, but you don't, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You have no idea like something tragic could happen that completely changes your path. And like, I think that I keep myself in a place that I'm flexible. I'm open. Like if something happens, I'm not going to be like, well, that doesn't fit into the plan. We can't do that. Like I, I have certain things and I have certain goals for me and my family and my business, but I'm, I'm, open to other things. Um, Where I think as early on, I wasn't as open. I was like, well, this is what we have to do. And this location has to be open and we have to do this. But like you, I'm a big believer in like Thinking about what you want, like thinking about that constantly, putting that energy out there. If there's something you want, start speaking about it openly. Make it like, let's say you, you know, you want to move into marketing, like whatever. Like start saying like, when I, when I go into marketing, like start making it your reality and the universe brings things to you. I'm a big, big believer in that. Um, you know, if you're constantly negative, what do you think you attract? Like that's, Give that's Give an example
2: it. of how that's worked for, for you something that you've.
1: Put out. Well, like, okay, so like, I always had a dream of being on a reality show growing up, but not like a reality show, like Real World. Um, so, I mean, I stood in many lines for Real World auditions, Hard Rock Hotel, Planet Hollywood, um, but I, I always like had this dream of being on the Real World, and and you know then it kind of like whatever. And then when I got my reality show, so I had a show on VH1 um, called House of Consignment. So like a little over four years ago, so it was like before reality was like what reality is. Um, But that came as a cold call. Like I was working in my old location on Clark Street. It came in at like 5:30 at night. This producer called me out of LA and he's like, listen, like I think you could be a show. And this is when The Bachelorette was starting, so that tells you how long ago this was. (laughs) And I was like, oh no, like I would never marry someone on TV. And he's like, cause he's like, no, not that kind of show. Like, we could have a show about you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, We can't, I'm gonna send you a flip cam. Do you guys remember flip cams? Like, so he sent me a flip cam in the mail and I'm like, this guy's for real. Like he dropped a hundred dollar flip cam in the mail. Um, And I remember like I set up my little gray flip cam on the counter and like clients would come in and I'd be like, can I record you? And they're like, record what? And I'm like, just record you dropping off. And they're like, sure, whatever. So I would like record them and sent them my flip cam footage over like a two week period and they're like, we think this could be a show. And I'm like, really?
0: <laughs> and
1: it was right at the point that I was getting ready to move into my new location. So my first location, I was on Clark Street, um, right next to Cycle Smithy in Lincoln Park, um, like yeah, it's 600 square feet. There's a yogurt store there now. Um, <laughs> primary walls, very eBay. You know, it was, it was what I could afford. It was it. And... I, Right about that moment when this started to come about, I was building a new location. So it's a location on Halstead, like right between Webster and Armitage, 3,000 square feet, it's a luxury space. It was everything I'd ever dreamed of. And I knew the space was coming. And I'm like, they're like, we're gonna come out and film. And I'm like, well, you probably wanna come out and film when I move in my new location. Like, I don't think this is what you want. I was coincidentally moving in like three weeks. It was just like divine timing. So, like the week that I moved into my new location, which was the scariest. Thing I've ever done in my life because I went from this kind of comfortable spot and like having this bank account that I built up over five years to like literally being back at zero and being in this 3,000 square foot location that looked really empty when we moved in. Like really empty, like disturbingly empty that I was like, what the fuck did I do? This is the biggest mistake of my life. And we were just sitting in my office just crying like what have I done? And they came out that first week and they filmed a pilot and they just tailed me for like a couple days. I went and cleaned a closet at a girlfriend's house. It wasn't even a real closet. It was just someone that was willing to let this crew in from LA. Um, and that's when you find out who are your real friends. Um, and they like came and like filmed some stuff and they were like, you know, it, the reality world's also very, well, it was very slow at the time. And like, 3 months later they're like okay we're going to let's come out and really film this for a week so we can pitch it to the networks and I was like okay cool because in my mind I was like great like I got a pilot that like I can put on my website like that pilot would have cost me a gazillion dollars to have produced like this is great marketing materials and then when they come out for a week I was like well I'm going to have a crew in my store for a week this is cool I never was like I'm going to get a show I was just along for the ride I was like this is a new experience like how as far as it goes it goes this is cool so, they came out, they filmed the pilot, and then they're like, okay, we're gonna bring you to LA and we're gonna shop it to all the networks. And I was like, this is amazing. I could go to E, I might see Kat Sadler, I could see Juliana Rancic. Like, this is like <laughs> what I'm thinking. I'm like, this is so cool. And I went and did all these network meetings, and it was so cool. We like sat in their like, big room, and like some people would talk to you, others would say nothing, and you'd watch your pilot, and then you would like look for a reaction, and sometimes you'd get one, and then other times they would just like write in their notebook, and they'd be like, thank you, and you're like, Okay, that's it, cool. Um, And VH1 ended up buying the show. I never thought the show, I never thought it would actually happen because it just seemed like such like a far reach thing. Um, But I think it happened because I just went along with it. I wasn't like I have to have this. This is my defining moment. If I don't get this, I didn't put all my eggs in one basket. It was like, cool. Like I'll put a little bit here. I'll put a little bit there.
2: And how did that impact your business?
1: It was crazy. Um, being on TV is really powerful, in in a positive way and a negative way. Um, so positive was like obviously like immediate exposure. To me, I was like, if I get the show, that's equivalent. A 30 minute episode is about $700,000 in advertising this is awesome. Like, this is great exposure. And I was really particular with when I, when I filmed the show. Um, I probably was a little too guarded because I still had a real business and we didn't cast anyone in the show. So this was like my real staff. So I was like, this is like really real. Like, this can impact me in a really bad way if we have like this crazy drama and this and that, which we didn't have and they obviously always try to get you to do, but it just wasn't me. Um, but it was huge. I mean, we had tons of press, Um, our average sale price on our auctions skyrocketed because people were literally just sitting online bidding like while they were watching the show. Um, Which was so great. But here's where the negative came in. So what happened was um, have any of you guys watched Girlboss on Netflix yet? I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's a really good series about Sophia who started Nasty Gal. Um, Her and I's stories are very very similar, a little too similar except for like I didn't steal things and do tons of drugs, um, but you know, if you read her book, she's very open, she's a cool girl. Um, but what happened was eBay is very competitive and sellers are competitive, it happens in any market, and they, Accused me of shill bidding, which means you're bidding up your own auctions Which is a federal offense because my auction prices were so high and they're like well She's taking away business from us. So this forum that I'm not allowed to say the name of um, They all belong to this forum and they started making these accusations of me on a forum and there's nothing worse than someone accusing you of something on a forum that has no validity and is super false and I did what Sophia did, and I did what you're not supposed to do. I like, went in and like, defended myself. Well, like, trolls love some interaction. And it fueled them. And what happened was this forum was like, oh my god, this has got 100,000 hits in one day. Let's put some SEO behind this. Let's boost this post. And it was becoming detrimental to me. And so we filed lawsuit, filed cease and desist to take it down. And the two attorneys, which attorneys, if any of you are attorneys, I love you, but (laughs) just a little bit. Um, But the two attorneys kind of made it more about themselves than like what the case was. Um, And if you ever get caught in legal, like if you say you're gonna sue someone, you've most likely never been in a lawsuit before because the last thing you ever wanna be in is a lawsuit on either end. It's just a waste of energy, money, and it's emotionally draining. And this went on for about a year and a half while this group just ate me alive every single day. And it was really, really, really emotionally hard. Um, I lost a lot of weight, which was kind of great, but not. Um, (laughs) But I was really thin and looked really good, but um, I was so stressed. And what I learned was that, I I felt like I had to defend myself because what they were accusing me for was, was federally illegal. So I was like, I had to say, like, this has no validity. But I just should have left it alone and let them be and i think it's hard and like we're in this trolling age where people think that they can just like throw an opinion out throw words out and then like they're behind a username or a screen name so it doesn't matter i mean like go on kim kardashian's comments it's like the most disgusting thing you'll ever see like why do you think that you have the right to say that to her would you say it to her if she was in front of you probably not and i think that we've become in this day and age you're like you think you're your, own, you're your own critic. You can go use these forums. You can voice your opinion. But like, there's always two sides to every story. And it's difficult operating under that. And for me, like I knew it was going to come being on TV, but I didn't know how hard it was. And when you put yourself out there, you're allowing people to have an opinion. And people have a right to have an opinion. Um, but it can be really difficult. And you, you got to know kind of when to shut it off or what to pay attention to and what not. Um, but they attacked me um, and it was really, really hard. I was just bullied as well.
2: How did that end up getting results?
1: Out of court, via settlement and yeah, that's all I can say. It was done. It was done.
2: Are you glad you did the show?
1: Um, I'm glad I did the show. Here's why I'm, the biggest thing for me of doing the show was before I did the show, I did not, I thought I was maxed out. I thought this is all I could do. My days were maxed. There was no way I could manage any more people or or take on any more responsibility, like I have no time. Well, when you film a show, like it's not about you anymore and you're on their agenda. So suddenly you're working for the network. So you have this staff, this crew of like 30 people that's on your floor, all their livelihoods depend on this footage that they're capturing of you and you're on their agenda. So. Five days a week, six days a week, all day long, I'm doing whatever is slated out. So reality is real, but it's not real. It's like we're going to do this closet from 2 to 6. We're going to film in-office reality from 6 to 8. You're going to be off-site doing interviews, you know, where they look like they're in their living room, where I look like I'm in my office, like I was not in my office. I was in, like, a whole other location that was, like, my office recreated. You have to go and do these interviews. Well, I still had to run my company. So I had to run my company at night. So, like, I would go home and then have to do all my work that I needed to really accomplish during the day. And I'll never forget, we wrapped the first week of filming. We filmed for 16 weeks. (laughs) I was laying in bed, and I was like, I had tears rolling down my cheeks. And I was like, Spiro, what did I do? And he looked at me and goes, baby, it's fine. Only 16 more weeks. And it literally felt like he said, like, only 93 more years. And I was like, oh, my God. But when it was done and when the crew left and everything settled out and it went back to normal, I suddenly realized that I wasn't doing all I could do. I wasn't working as smart as I thought I could. And it restructured the way that I I tackled my day and it allowed me to really handle that growth that came from the show and be prepared for that.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy podcast by Ivy, the social university.